and turn to the, the book of Galatians. It's on page 974 in the, the Pew Bible, or if you have a, a Bible on your device or um, one that you, you brought with you, if you would turn there. We, we have been working our way through the book of Galatians for, for quite a while now, and we, we find ourselves at the beginning, or, uh, or I guess you could say the middle of chapter 4. And last week, we, we looked at um, Paul talking about the slavery that every single person has apart from Christ, that apart from Jesus, we actually are enslaved to what he calls the, the elementary principles of the world. But then he also talked about how we have actually been freed through the sovereign action of God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, that, that he has done so much for us. He, he, he said that we were slaves, but then he freed us, and that, that's amazing that we'd be freed from, from slavery. But then he goes a step further and doesn't just free us, but he adopts us into his, his family as, as heirs of his kingdom through, in Christ. But then he even goes a step further than that and sends his Holy Spirit to, to dwell in us, to, to cry out to, to God as Father. So now we'll begin in, in verse 8. Listen as I read, Galatians 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid that I have, may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus." What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the, the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are our Blessed Lord, that you are God from all eternity, from before time began. And Lord, we know that you have, have spoken in the past, that you have spoken through Scripture, and especially here through the book of Galatians. And we thank you that, that you have given this to, to guide us, and that you have consistently guided your people in the wilderness. You have supported them in exile and tribulation and pain. And so, Lord, just wherever we are today in the midst of our own particular confusion, our own doubt, um, our own struggles, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us order and, and direction. Lord, you would speak to us in your gospel, that you would transform us by your grace. 
and renew us in your hope. And Lord, we, we thank you that you rule the past and the present and the future. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, Christians can be very perplexing people. And, and I think you probably know this if you've been around Christians very much or been around the, the church uh, very long, that you've experienced this, that, that Christians can be perplexing because they will argue about the color of the carpet in their, in their church and, instead of focusing on the, the more important things, that, that Christians sometimes will, will focus entirely on some tradition that they'll, they will not let go of that scripture never commands and then focus on all sorts of things and ignore all sorts of things that the Bible clearly talks about. Christians can be perplexing because, you know, in the name of Christ, people have tried to justify slavery or thought that the Crusades was a good, were a good idea, right? That, that Christians can be so perplexing. And we, and we see Paul here in our text in Galatians being perplexed by the Galatians. And actually, if you look at verse 20, he says, I wish that I could be present with you now and change my tone. And I, I struggled with that. Does he mean change his tone to be harsher <laughs> or change his tone to be more gentle? And, and I actually think probably that he wants to change his tone to, to that they would hear his heartfelt concern for them. In the same way that when you send somebody a text or an email, they can't always get your emotions, even with an emoji or something like that. But he's saying that, I wish that you could hear the tone of my voice, that you would know my deep love and, and concern for you. And then he gives the reason, for I am perplexed about you, that he is perplexed by these, these Christians. And so this is really the, the plea of a perplexed pastor to perplexing Christians who actually are a lot like you and me. And so we'll walk through this, this passage, and we'll look at it under three headings. So the first is that Christians can be perplexing people, and the first is that we are prone to reject freedom. That's verse 8 to 11. The second, we are prone to reject friendship. That's verse 12 to 16. And then finally, we're prone to accept flattery. So we reject freedom, we reject friendship, and we accept flattery. So let's, let's begin then that Christians can be perplexing people because we are prone to reject freedom. Look in your Bible back at the beginning of our text in, in verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And you'll remember back in verse 3 that we looked at last week, Paul talked about the fact that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world before God the Father sent his Son to redeem us and the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And we talked about how these elementary principles of the world can be religious or irreligious, that we can be religious or irreligious slaves. Uh, the, the great reformer Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians says that without Christ, all religion is idolatry. And I love that, that without Christ, all religion is idolatry. That, that, we, that we think that we can work our way up to God through some ceremony or through our good deeds. And that ultimately brings slavery, that it, it never, ever works. 
But then there's also this irreligious slavery where all irreligion, apart from Christ, is slavery as well, where we're enslaved to the fear of man or we're enslaved to a lust for power, desire for pleasure, or an allure for romance in some way. And so we, we look to these things, and then rather than us controlling them, they control us. And everything that we do is then motivated by this slavery to elementary principles. But thankfully, God rescued us from this slavery. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. That what Paul is saying to the, to the Galatians is that in, in paganism, they didn't know God. They, they didn't know his attributes. They didn't know his character. They didn't know him. But yet when, when Paul preached, they came to this knowledge of God, this knowledge of how we are actually saved in Jesus Christ. But really in, in scripture, he, he's talking about something deeper even than we might think of to know God. Because we think of knowing so often as just this cognitive thing that we know about something. But so often in scripture, the word to know is much deeper. That scripture talks about Adam knowing his wife so that she conceives. That's this deep, intimate acquaintance with someone. Or it talks about God knowing the prophet Jeremiah when he was in his mother's womb. Or it talks about God knowing Abraham as he called him out of Ur into the promised land. That, that we can know something, but it's not know about it, but know this deep experiential knowledge. And that is what Paul is saying. This is what you gained of God, this deep experiential knowledge of God and his love as he comes to, to dwell in us, to redeem us, to, to save us as we're born again, adopted into the family of God. But then I, I love how he, he corrects himself a little bit and he says, you came to know God and that's true, but ultimately Christianity isn't about us knowing God, but it's actually about him knowing us. And he says that you have come rather to be known by God. And John says uh, that we know God because, and we love him because he loved us first. Or even earlier in our service, we sang these words, I love thee because thou hast first loved me. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that we know God because he actually knew us first, that he had this deep experiential acquaintance with us as he called us out of darkness into his light. And so it's, it's true throughout Scripture that, that God is always on the, the, in the driver's seat of salvation, that he initiates and, and we respond, that we're not the ones who, who get the ball rolling. God always does. So the, the Galatians have this experience of, of freedom through their knowledge of God and through being known by him. But then look at verse 9, that they too are, are prone to reject their freedom for slavery. So uh, the second part of, of verse 9, after they have experienced this freedom, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? And I love that how he calls them weak and, and worthless. And some old translations say beggarly, that these weak and beggarly uh, elementary principles of the world. And then he says, whose slaves you want to be once more, that they actually want 
slavery over freedom in Christ. And this is a lot like the, the nation of Israel. If you go and read your Old Testament, that they were, they were slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh, and God brought them out through his, his power. He redeemed them, brought them through the Red Sea on, on dry land, brought them to the Mount Sinai where they received the law. And as they were heading to the promised land, and, and God said, I will give you this land, that I, I will do it, not you, that I am initiating this, not, not you, they started to worry that we're not going to have enough water, we're not going to have enough food, and they thought that God had just led them out into the desert to die. And so what do they say? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's return to slavery. Because, yeah, things were, were bad in Egypt, but at least we had food. At least we had water. It has to be better than where we are now. And, and that's the way that we are so often as well, where we experience this incredible freedom, this deliverance from bondage, adoption into God's family, but then we're, we're perplexing that we say, well, let's just go back to, to where we were. And really, this is what Christians have been doing for thousands of years of trying to return to slavery. And here, here's an example. If you look at, at verse 10 again, Paul gives the example of how they are actually following elementary principles. And he says that you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. And so what, what Paul is saying is that they have become enslaved to Jewish festivals, to Jewish holidays uh, that we might think of as Passover, even Saturday Sabbath, uh, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, uh, Rosh Hashanah, many other days. Now, there's nothing wrong with those holidays in and of themselves, but what the false teachers were beginning to claim is that in order to really be a Christian, you have to observe these things, that you're not a real follower of Christ unless you are following these days and these, these ceremonies. Or probably even a step further, that by following these, you're in some way racking up merit with God that you can earn his favor. And so they've re-enslaved themselves to religious elementary principles. But then the, actually the same thing happened to the church in the Middle Ages. So through the teaching of this passage and many others in the New Testament, the church moved away from saying that we're going to earn our salvation through following Jewish festivals and seasons and, and days. But then they introduced a penitential season called Lent. And I'm sure that many of you celebrate Lent. And the same with the Jewish festivals. There's nothing wrong with Lent in and of itself, that it's a great idea to fast. It's a great idea to prepare ourselves for, for Easter. But what happened during the Middle Ages is that the church wanted to, to return to slavery, to elementary principles. And so they began to say that this is actually a way that through observing Lent, you purify yourself and you make yourself holy enough to then take communion on Easter. And that, that it's through doing this ceremony that you're working your way up to God. And even took it a step further that somebody who didn't participate in Lent would, it, would be viewed as a sub-Christian and could actually be excommunicated from the church, even though the Bible doesn't talk about Lent, never commands Lent. So in, in light of all of this, in 1522 in Zurich, Switzerland, uh, this guy named Zwingli, who is one of the 
reform, Protestant reformers took this stand against elementary principles of the, of the world. And again, it's not that he was against Lent in and of itself. He wasn't against fasting. He wasn't against spiritual disciplines. But he saw that what was happening is people were being re-enslaved to say that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to do this thing. You have to observe this season. And so he led what historians have called the, the affair of the sausage, um, which I just think is the best name for a historical event, the affair of the, of the sausage. Uh, and so what, what happened was that the, the city of Zurich and the church there was saying, everyone has to follow Lent or they'll be excommunicated. That this is, this is required if you are going to be a Christian. And, and so they said, this is not commanded in scripture. This is not, uh, this, is, this is slavery. This is not a statement of the freedom that we have in Christ. And so they, they got together and had a sausage dinner during Lent, which was forbidden by the, by the practices of the church. And, and to us, it, it seems maybe a little bit irreverent almost that, you know, okay, could there have been a, a better way than to just get together for a, a sausage dinner? But, but again, that they, they were being motivated by the gospel, by the fact that we, we want to assert our freedom in Christ, that we're not bound to days and seasons and months and years in order to, to earn God's favor, in order to purify us, that we are pure in Christ through faith in him alone. And so really for us, you know, we need to think a lot about what is the sausage dinner in our life. And again, I, I've, I've just been waiting to say that. Uh, <laughs> What is, the, what is the sausage dinner for us? That, uh, what is the thing that, that where, where somebody's coming to us, even though scripture doesn't talk about it, and is trying to rob the freedom that we have in Christ? And how are we tempted to be re-enslaved to the elementary principles? I mean, it could be somebody who says that you should never, ever, ever drink alcohol. Scripture definitely says drunkenness is wrong. It definitely says we should drink in moderation, but scripture never says that you can't drink anything at all. Or sometimes a church, somebody might come and say that you must wear a certain particular type of clothes to church. Again, like scripture does talk about we should be, have modesty, we should have respect in the way that we dress, but it, scripture never says that you need to put a piece of fabric around your, your neck in a certain way, right? That, that if, and then if the church is saying that this is what you must do, in order to be a Christian, then it can take a step too far. Again, the difference between that's a great thing to do versus you must do this. And in a way, I, I call it the, the Amish error, the Amish mistake, that it's a great idea if somebody wants to sell their car and get a buggy. I think that that's a really cool thing to do. Uh, probably maybe more of us should think about it. Um, but but when, when we then say, if you're going to be a Christian, and if you're going to be part of this church, you must sell your car and buy a buggy. And if you do, if you do something else, you can't be part of this. That is exactly what Paul is talking about here. It is being re-enslaved to the elementary principles. And we can do it through dress, through all sorts of things. That Maybe some of you were actually enslaved to alcohol in some way, an addiction. And then you came to know Christ. You were known by him. And you experienced freedom from that. But then you are maybe depressed in some way, and then you're tempted to, to re-enslave yourself to something. Or maybe you were, you were enslaved to pornography, or, 
and then you experience freedom in Christ, but then you're, you're lonely in some way, and then you, you want to, to re-enslave yourself to something that Christ has freed you from. Or maybe you were enslaved to other people's opinions and saying, I, I just everything I'm doing is for the fear of man. But then in Christ, you, you found what your identity actually is, that God loves you. You've been adopted into his family. But then somebody criticizes you, and you just want to immediately return to slavery to other people's opinion instead of living in the freedom that is ours in Christ. So there's so many ways that we are perplexing people because we are so prone to return to slavery after experiencing freedom. And that is our our first section, that we return to slavery. But then second, Christians can be perplexing people because we also are prone to reject friendship. And we see this in verse 12, if you look there in your Bible. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm a Jew, and I I was once enslaved to uh, these religious practices, and I've experienced freedom in Christ. And so he's saying that that you, as as a Gentile Galatian, become as I am, become free of the law in Christ. And then he continues, you know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So Paul apparently experienced some sort of bodily ailment when he was with the, the Galatians, when he was initially preaching the gospel to them. And it could be some sickness that he doesn't talk about elsewhere in Scripture. But I actually think it could be the, some of the, the struggles that he had actually in Galatia, specifically with persecution. If you were to go to the book of Acts, the history of the early church, you read Acts 14, you'll see Paul's missionary journey through Galatia. He was actually stoned by religious people in a town, and they thought that he was dead, completely dead, and they just left him there. And we can kind of pass over that, but, I mean, imagine getting pelted with stones so your body's getting bruised and your bones are breaking, and then you're just left there and people thinking you're dead. That's not something that just immediately all the effects are going to go away from that. And this is exactly what happened to, to Paul in Galatia. Now, he, we do know from Acts that he went very quickly to preaching the gospel again after that. Uh, but certainly the, the marks of that were still visible. There would have been a time of, of, of healing. So that could be what he's talking about, this bodily ailment. But the Galatians, as he was suffering with this, they didn't reject him, even as a society that valued strength so much that they received him as a friend. And as they brought him in, of course, he used that as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to them, that he preached the gospel to them because of a bodily ailment. And and their friendship, as they came to Christ, became so intense that the Galatians would have sacrificed anything for Paul. That he even uses this graphic language of, you know, that you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That was the depth of their friendship. But then something happened that, that Paul says that the Galatians have lost their blessedness, that 
They're treating him like an enemy because he is telling them the truth. And so the, the Galatians here, they're intent on following these false teachers. They want to go on and just do their own thing. And, and so it's the equivalent of unfriending somebody on Facebook. But even more than that, they're saying, we're unfriending you, Paul. We don't want the kind of relationship that we had with you formally. And so Paul is, is perplexed about this behavior of the Christians. And I think, though, that the Galatians aren't unique in this sort of behavior. In the, over the years of being involved in, in churches, interning, pastoring, attending, that I've seen in the story lots of times where somebody will start to attend a church, and they'll say, oh, I love this church so much. I love the people, the teaching. They're, they're growing in some way. Uh, but then something happens where they hear something that they don't like from the pulpit or somebody says something, or maybe, as Paul says, somebody tells them the truth in some way, and they, they say, all right, this is, I don't need to be here. And then without talking to anybody, without having a conversation, without meeting with anyone, they, they go on somewhere else. And, and really the, the reason for that, I think, is that we so often treat our relationships in the church as just sort of a consumer relationship where we'll get what we need as long as we can get it. But if it feels like there's any sort of difficulty or any sort of tension, I'm out of here, uh, that we would have once gouged out our eyes for the people, but then we just don't even talk to them anymore. And this can be so painful for pastors, for, as I'm sure it was painful for Paul, because there are definitely good reasons to, to leave a church. But you, so often we do it in the, in the wrong way, that we reject friendship rather than loving truth, that we take these people that we were committed to and then just move on. And so we can be perplexing in our rejection of friendship. And really, that's the second section here in our, in our text. But now let's look at our, the third and, and final section, that Christians can be perplexing people because we're prone to accept flattery. And look at verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So what Paul is saying here is that the, the false teachers have come into the churches in Galatia to make much of the Galatians, that they're flattering the Galatians, but really their goal in all of that is so that the Galatians will make much of them, that they're, they're flattering in order to be flattered in return. And behind it all is this very diabolical purpose that it, Paul says that they want to shut you out. And he say, that means that he want, they, they want to shut the Galatians out of relationship with Paul. They want to shut them out of the true gospel. They want to shut them out of the true church. And ultimately, they want to shut them out of the, the kingdom of heaven. And they're, they're doing this through flattery, and it's working. And I actually, this week, came across a couple articles. One was in Scientific America, Business Insider, and the Harvest Business Review. And all of them confirmed that in, apparently in marketing, flattery really works. That 
people know it's flattery. They know the person isn't telling the truth, but they still respond to it. And they gave even the example of somebody who's buying a car and the car salesman says, wow, you know, in this convertible, you just look so good in that convertible. You look 10 years younger. And the person knows, okay, I don't look 10 years younger in this car. The person's just saying it. But what they said is that because it's still, it feeds something inside of us, it makes us feel good in a way. And so often decisions that we make are made more out of our feelings about something than what we know in our head. And, and so the people will then respond to it. Or another example that was in one of the articles was a columnist for the BBC who was asked to speak at a conference, and she didn't want to speak at it, but she said that in the email, the person said, oh, I've, I've read every single article that you've written. It's changed my life. We would be so excited if you came, and it would make our conference so good. And she said that she accepted it pretty much immediately, and then thought, wait, I didn't want to do that. And it was the flattery that she knew that, that it wasn't True, and this is what the, the Galatians were doing. They're making much of the, of the people in order to be made much of themselves. Now, Paul, though, also admits that he is making much of the Galatians. He says that I, I am making much of you. I mean, Galat- the book of Galatians is him making much of the, of the Galatians. But he's not doing it out of flattery. He's not doing it to, to puff himself up, to make himself look good. Um, that, that he is doing it because of his deep love and concern. He wants to see them return to the gospel, return to the truth. And I think that this is actually important for us to remember as well in, in Hope Church, where there, there will be times when all of us are going to be tempted to, to walk away from the, the gospel in some way or to, to walk into a behavior that's not consistent with Scripture. And it's possible that somebody out of love might make much of us. They, they might write you a letter saying, hey, I, I care about you. Don't do this. They may make, meet with you in, per- in person and change their tone with you uh, because they're, they're perplexed. And, and when that happens, we need to know that the person isn't doing it out of to be judgmental. They're doing it out of love. And they're, they're trying to tell the truth and not flattering. And I think also, though, when that when that happens, it's really tempting to give in to flattery because no matter what we're doing or what we're, uh, belief we're tempted to embrace, you can always find somebody out there who's going to tell you that you're doing the right thing, that somebody who's about to leave their wife for some reason, they can always find somebody who says, yeah, you know, that's really right. You know, you're both going to be happier if you just go embrace freedom and, you know, that you need to, to live your life or or somebody might be, be tempted to walk into false teaching that against scripture, and, and they can find a professor somewhere at a major university who's written some book about how you can't trust scripture, and that actually this person is so wise for you know, not, not being trapped in some narrow-minded system. And, and we respond to that because we love being flattered. We love having what we think is right confirmed, but it's not the truth. It's not what we actually need. And it's true that false teaching always flattered us, flatters us, that false religion flatters us by saying, you know, you're good enough to work your way up to God. But the gospel is honest with us and says, no, actually, we're not good enough. That's why Christ had to die on the cross. Or New Age type philosophy can, can 
flatter us and say, oh, there's this inner light within you that just needs to be kind of unleashed into the world, where the, the gospel is honest to us and says, says no, that apart from Christ, we, we dwell in darkness. Secular academia flatters us by saying that our, our limited human minds can piece everything together, can understand reality apart from God, but it flatters us because ultimately, as Jesus says, apart from him, that we can do nothing. But then what we see in Christ is, is completely different, that Christ is somebody who was never tempted to return to slavery, that he, he was free. But yet on the cross, he actually gave up his freedom for us. He gave up his freedom as he died and bled. That Jesus was, was a true friend to his followers, that he says in scripture that he was the, the friend of sinners. But then, like Paul, people rejected him for telling the truth. They treated him as an enemy. And ultimately, as he was being betrayed, as he was going to the cross, all of his friends were gone. He was there by himself as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, of course, Jesus never gave in to flattery. He knew what was in the heart of, of man. And though he was always perplexed by people like us who are so prone to, to care about what, what people say about us, that Jesus is the, the good shepherd who goes after the perplexing sheep to, to redeem them and to, to bring them back. And this is ultimately the, the reality that, that we see here in the Lord's Supper. That yes, we, we are people who want to give up freedom to return to slavery, but we look here at the, that what Christ has prepared for us, that we have life in him, that he has come to, to feed us, to strengthen us. And yes, we are people who are, who are going to be prone to reject friendship for telling us the truth. But this is, this is a place where we see who we actually are, that because of our sin, our body should have been broken. Our blood should have been shed because of our rebellion against God. But that Jesus stepped into our place, took the punishment that we deserve, and all that we need to do is admit we can't do it and trust in him, and we can experience life and salvation. And of course, also, this is a place where, as we are prone to accept flattery, where, where we're also called back. Because this, this meal is communion with God, but it's also communion with, with those around us, that we remember that, that people who are partaking are people who, at some point, may have to tell us the truth. Or we may have to tell them the truth at some place, at some time. And in that time, how are we going to respond to that? Are we going to respond by rejecting friendship, by loving flattery, or loving truth?